Hey, so when it comes to football, some of you are football fans, right? You enjoy it? Well, some of you are. Some of you are already looking forward to next season. But anyway, we won't talk about that. But, uh, but when it comes to a sport like football, if you're familiar with some of the plays, one of them is the victory formation. I think we have a picture of it up here on the screen. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I don't know where that came from. But anyway, um, the victory for now put that back up there. We're going to leave that up there just for a little bit. Um, the victory formation usually happens at the end of a game. Uh, the offense has the ball. The defense may could still potentially win, but, but they don't have any more timeouts. And so the offense is just getting into this, this formation and say, hey, we've won. We're good to go. We're done. And, and in this play, when the ball is hiked and the quarterback gets it, the defense usually just stands up and acknowledges this game is over with. A few years ago, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were playing the New York Giants, and this play was set up. It was the formation, the victory formation. The Giants had the ball. The, the Buccaneers had no more timeouts left, but the score was still close. And so the Buccaneers coach says, hey, here's what I want you guys to do. As soon as they hike the ball, I don't want you to stand up. I don't want you to acknowledge that we lost. I want you to try to win. And so he said, I want you to push through that line and see if we can knock the ball out of the quarterback's hand and hopefully get, get a fumble. And then we can get that ball and we can take it down and we can score and maybe we can win this game. Now, I think they actually did this on a couple of, of plays. As you can imagine, the, the Giants players weren't real happy because this wasn't what you were supposed to do. It's kind of this gentleman's agreement. This is how this play was supposed to work. They weren't real happy. The coaches weren't happy. Fans weren't happy. Commentators weren't happy. I got to tell you something. I kind of admired it. Because here's a coach who came in and said, here's the deal, guys. We can still win this game. Like, until they blow that final whistle, hey, we're going to keep playing to the very end. Today, we do conclude this series called Game Plan. And in this series, we've been asking a question, and it's a, it's a pretty deep question for each one of us. What is God's will for my life? What is God's game plan for my life? And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of this. We, we talked about how God has created us and gifted us. We, we talked about how we put that into practice in our life to figure out where God's leading us. Uh, last week, we talked about the importance of having people in our life, groups in our life, that, that can kind of give us advice into what it looks like and what God may be leading us to. Uh, but this week, I want to talk about the most important part of this question. And the most important part of this question is, is you. It, it's me. Are we at the place in our life where we've kind of given up on God's will for us? Or are we willing to keep playing the game until the final whistle is blown? Because when it comes to that question, what is God's will for my life? For some of us, that's actually a very, very scary question. And, and the reason is, we look back at our past. We, we look back at the life that we've led so far, the decisions that we've made, uh, the choices that we've had, the regrets that may be that are there. And so we look back at our life and we're like, man, you know, how could God want to work with me because of where I've been in my past, what I've done in my past? How could God use me when, when I have been this type of person? And so we actually hold on to that past. We, we can't seem to, to let it go and to move forward and to keep playing that game. What is God's will for my life? For some of us, we're stuck. Because that question keeps going over and over in our head. And, and we think there's actually no tomorrow for us because of the past that we've experienced. 
If this sounds familiar to you, there's a question that I'm going to ask you this morning. Here's this question. What do you think God thinks about you? Let that soak in for a moment. What do you think God thinks about you? Because, I mean, honestly, that's a, that's a powerful question because here's the way you will answer it every single time. And I would do this too. I'll answer this question by thinking, this is what I think about myself. I will put God into this place. I'll say, well, here's how I would answer that question if I were God. And so what we begin to do is we begin to define God by our own self. That we look inwardly and say, if I were God, this is how I would answer this for me. Here's the cool part about God. God doesn't take cues from you or from me. God thinks differently than we do, which I hope could give us hope for now and in the future. But we believe God takes cues from us. And so when we look at that question and say, what do you think God thinks about you? Our answer is, well, this is what I think about myself. So this is how God must think about me. God's like, no, no, I think about you differently than that. Here's how I think God thinks about us. In Scripture, humanity is called children of God over and over and over again. And as we look at that, uh, that, that idea, it puts God into this role of parent. Now, I, I know for some of us in here, we struggle with God because of the relationships that we've had with our parents. And, and maybe still, we still do to this day. Uh, maybe your mom ran out on you, your dad was abusive, and so this idea of God in this, this parent role, this father role, we, we kind of struggle with that, and, and I understand that. Just kind of put that to the side for a moment, okay? If we're children of God, and God is the parent, God sees something in us that we don't see in ourselves. Uh, for instance, um, when, when Karen and I were younger, and our kids were a lot younger, we'd hang out with families that had younger kids, and um, I don't know how many times we had these parents come up to us and like, hey, our kid's a genius. We're like, what? Our kid is so smart. Man, we're going to go have them tested. I'm like, your kid's not even a year old yet. How are you? Where is this coming from? Maybe it's just gas, okay? Just let the gas pass. Everything will be fine. And they say, hey, my kid's a genius. I'm like, I don't think your kid's a genius. The cool part is you can look back years later. You're like, your kid definitely wasn't a genius. I was right back in the end of the day when I told you that. But, uh, but, but parents, here's the deal. Here's why we say that. We see the potential in our kids, don't we? Even if we've got kids that are teenagers, if they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and they're in trouble, as a parent, we still look at them. We're like, man, I acknowledge what they're doing or they've done isn't right, but I still see the potential in them. That's how God views you and views me. God sees us, and God's like, hey, I— I acknowledge your past. Your past is there. I know it's happened. By the way, I was there every single time, but I see the potential in you, that, that there's more to you than you see in yourselves. Again, we define God's relationship with us and that connection with God by how we would define ourselves. And we say, hey, I would hold on to the past. And God's like, no, it's there, but there's more to it. I see the potential in you. There's more in you than, than you see in yourselves. That's what makes us good parents, right? Because we see the potential in our kids, and God sees the potential in you and me. God sees the potential in us, but we still fight it. We still try to hold on to that past. We still don't want to let it go, and God's like, no. You got to move beyond this. You got to look forward. That's why I love the act of baptism, because the act of baptism is one of those moments where we let that past go. 
Uh, this year, we've seen 22 people who have been baptized. And, and as I think about that, here's a group of people that have said, hey, here's my past. Here, here's who, who I was. And in baptism, you, you go under the water and you come back up. And that, that past is kind of cleaned off of you. It, it's let go. And, and as you come up, you're, you're looking forward in, into that future. You're looking forward to what God has for you. You've said, the past is gone, and and now it's time for me to look forward. And and even in those moments where we want to look back, God kind of grabs our our head and turns us around like, no, 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 no. The potential is there. I see it in you. Keep moving forward. And again, baptism is that act, I think, that we take in life where we can begin to move forward. Because God doesn't take cues from us. God sees us differently than we see ourselves. And no matter what that past may look like, God says, I know it's there, but I want to move you in a different direction. Because I see the potential in in you. We're going to look at a passage this morning out of 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to spend some time there today. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it up on the screen so you can follow along on your Journey Church app and also on the program. You can take some notes, but um, I'll get there in a second. Let me get a little context uh, about where we're going to be this morning. It's a little bit before where we were last week, if you were here with us. Uh, in First Samuel, we find that you've got the nation of, of, of Israel, and uh, they, they got a pretty sweet gig. They're, now, they're a fickle people, but they got a sweet gig. God rules them, so they're a theocracy, okay, which means God, God rules. Well, well they, these people are, are, are people, and they're human, and they start looking around, and they're like, hold up a second. They got a king, and they got a king, and they got a king, and they got a king. Hey, hey, God, we want a king. And God's like, you don't need a king. And they're like, no, no, no. They've all got kings. We want a king. God's like, well, hold up a second, guys. Like, you got the best deal around, all right? I know you don't quite understand, but this is what you need. You need me ruling over you, leading you, not, not a king. And they're like, no, we want a king. And so they're whining, and they're crying, and they're moping, and they're stomping their feet like kids. And God's like, please stop. He's like, I'll give you a king. And so he gives him a king, a guy named Saul. Saul comes in, and he doesn't start out too bad, but, but over a short amount of time, his life kind of changes. Uh, he starts listening to other people. He starts listening to himself. And God comes back and is like, i got to change this. This isn't working. I need a new king in place. And so God goes to this guy named Samuel. Samuel's God's prophet. A prophet's job is to listen to God and what God said. Then that prophet would then go tell the people what he heard from God. And, and so God goes to Samuel and is like, hey, we need to change things. I've got a new guy. I want to be king. I need you to go anoint him. So I need you to go to this guy named Jesse's house. So he sends him to this guy named Jesse's house. He gets to Jesse's house. He's like, hey, Jesse, big day for you, buddy. This is going to be a big day for, for your family. And so we read what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting with verse 6. Here's what it says. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So Samuel says, Hey, bring the boys out. And so Samuel brings out this first kid, and his name is Eliab. And Samuel sees him, and Samuel's like, This is it. This is the new king. Now, we find out what we're going to read in a second, that he sees his appearance, that he's good-looking, that he's handsome. And he's like, This has got to be the new, new king. Now, I'm guessing there's some other pieces to this. One of the things I always tell us is to put ourselves into these stories as we're reading these. And so I'm guessing not only was he good-looking, not only was he handsome, but he probably had a great personality. He probably looked kingly in just the way he interacted and acted and the words that came out of his mouth. And, and so Samuel's kind of putting all of this together and is like, man, this is like the easiest job I've ever had. I mean, my day is over with. I'm going to catch that tea time this afternoon. Everything's perfect. But God has a different response in verse 7. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel, again, he looks at the outside, and he's like, this is the king. This is the guy. This is the one who God has, has chosen. But Samuel does what we do. Samuel looks at the appearance. Samuel looks at what he hears coming out of Eliab's mouth. But it says here that the Lord looks at the heart. God wasn't really interested in what Eliab looked like. God was interested in what was inside, what was in the heart. And God says, this is not my guy. God does this throughout the Bible, though. You and I, if we were to choose people for specific moments in Scripture, we would not choose the same people that God chose. Because, again, God doesn't take cues from you and from, from me. When the nation of Israel begins, it begins with a guy named Abraham and his wife Sarah. Here's the deal. They're really, really, really old. And they don't have any kids. And God's like, perfect. This is who I'm going to start this nation with. You and I would look at that like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. They need to be young, and they need to be fertile, and they need to have kids. And God's like, no, I don't take my cues from you. I don't listen to you. I do things differently. They're perfect. Well, the prostitute Rahab, this is a person you and I would have not have chosen to be a hero in the biblical story, and yet we find that she helps to save Israel as they're coming into the promised land. They save her. And oh, there's this crazy part to her story where we find her name in the genealogy of Jesus. You and I would not choose a prostitute to be in that role, would we? Here's this perfect person over here, and they had the right education. They grew up in the right family. That's who we would have chosen. God's like, I don't take my cues from you. I do things differently. The past few weeks, we've been talking about this guy named Paul. Started out as Saul, and as Saul begins, he's this religious zealot. He is focused on stamping out this, this new faith, this new thing called Christianity. And, and so he's grabbing people out of their homes, and he's throwing them in jail, and he's torturing them, and he's killing them. And God's like, that's my boy. That's my guy. And everybody around's like, what are you talking about, God? And God's like, wait, I don't, I don't take my cues from you. And what do we see happens with Saul? Saul becomes Paul, and he becomes a pastor and a church planner. is one of the big catalysts for the story of Jesus being told all throughout the world. God doesn't take cues from you and I. We, we would write a very different story. And I tell you what, it'd be a boring story. God's like, hey, I don't take cues from you. I do things very differently than you do. I see things that you, you don't see. And can we be honest for a moment? If we were to look at Scripture, and if we were to look at the people that God uses— very rarely do you find good people, all right? Yeah, there's a Mary here and there. There's a couple of Josephs, maybe a couple of other people. But for the most part, if we look at Scripture, the people that God uses are not people that we would choose. And God's like, hey, because I'm not you, that's why I choose them. I'm not taking cues from you. I'm not trying to define the, the world the way that you would define it. I see something very differently than you do. And, and in the end, what God sees is God sees the heart. Samuel looks at Eliab and thinks, this is the guy. And God's like, nope. I'm looking at the heart. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then has Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen 
these. Samuel's probably like, what the heck is going on here? I mean, I came here, I thought I had this all figured out, now I'm going to miss my tea time, I'm tired, I'm worn, I just want to go home. I mean, God, what, what, what are you up to? Look at verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all, I added that emphasis there, are these all the sons you have? And again, I bet Samuel's a little exasperated at this point. Like, I, I'm tired again, I, I, just, I just want to be done with this. And here's Jesse's response. There is still the youngest. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Again, put yourself into the position of his brothers, David's brothers. Do you think they're kind of like, what? hold up a second. David? I mean, he's a shepherd, and he stinks, and he's the runt, and we make fun of him all the time. There's no way God would choose David to be this new king of Israel. But again, God doesn't see the same things that we see. Verse 12. So he sent and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Some reason Samuel can't seem to get beyond that because he's putting this together. But it says this. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came on David in power. And when we read a little bit further into David's story, it says that he is a man after God's own heart. I can promise you, if you and I were in God's place, David was probably one of the last people we'd have chosen because he doesn't fit any of the criteria that we would have looked for. Now, sure, he's good looking, he's handsome, but, but you had Iliab and you had these other brothers, you had these other people. But, but God doesn't look at the same things that we look in. God doesn't look at the, take the same cues that, that we take. God doesn't listen to, to, to who we think should be in power in roles. God's like, no, here, here's the way this works. I'm looking at something different. I'm looking at the heart. When you and I try to answer that question, God, what is your will for my life? Again, sometimes it's hard for us to get beyond that question because we look at our past and we look at our experiences and we look at our choices and our regrets and we're stuck there. But God's like, hey, I, I can use you. I can do amazing things through you. I see your potential. Will you follow me? Because what we did yesterday, honestly, I think is less concerned to God than our heart today. Where is your heart? Because here's what God does. And again, we, we find this throughout Scripture. God redeems and restores. Redeems and restores. Redeems and restores. We, we read these stories of people in Scripture, and we look at them and think, God would not use them, and God does. And here's what God does. God redeems their life. He, he says, I know your past. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. Hey, I'm going to redeem that. And in fact, I'm going to restore you. And here's why I see the potential that you have. And for you to walk in my will, this is what this is going to look like. You take these steps with me, and I'll show you exactly how I'm going to use you to do incredible and amazing things in this world. And God does the same with you and with me. When we're stuck in our past, God redeems us and restores us. Redeems us and restores us. But we've got to stop focusing on that past, and we've got to let that past go. Now, the one thing we do know is that it doesn't magically disappear, right? That would be great if we could forget about the past, we forget about our experiences. It doesn't magically disappear. It's still there, and, and I truly believe God still acknowledges it, but here's what I think God wants to do. I think God wants to leverage our past. 
that, that God wants to take the past that we've experienced and the things that we've done and say, hey, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to restore you. I see the potential that you have. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you how you can use that past to impact the lives of others. And so maybe you've been in a broken marriage or, or broken marriages. And finally, you've come out of that and, and your focus is, is fully on Christ. And I think God says, hey, I want, I want to take that. And I, I don't want you to forget about it. I want you to use that to impact somebody else's life. I want you to use that to save this other person's marriage because they're going through the same things you went through. And you, you didn't take the right steps, but, but I'm here to help you through that now so that now you can, you can impact their lives. Maybe for some of us in here, we lived through a childhood of abuse. And, um, and my heart breaks when I hear those stories. Let me just say this. Um, some of you have been told to lie that God makes that happen so that something good can come out of that. That's a bold-faced lie. God does not make that happen in your life. That's evil, all right? That's Satan at work in somebody else's life. But here's what I do believe. That some of us in this room, we've gotten beyond that. We, we've worked through that. And for some of us, it's taken years, years and years and years for us to get to this place. Hopefully, a lot of that's been through counseling. And so you've got to this, this place now where you're in a healthier place. I think God says, hey, I need you to help them because they've been in the same place that you were in. Or maybe for them, it's, hey, they're going through that right now. I need you to jump in and help them take the necessary steps to get beyond this. I think that's what God can do for us. I think that's part of God's will. Not only following God, not only following Christ and taking those steps, but then God says, hey, let me leverage your past. Let me do something with your past so that more lives can be changed and transformed. Because God sees that potential in you, and God sees that potential in someone else. Are we willing to let God leverage our past? Because I truly believe that's God's will for our life to follow Christ, and then to take these steps forward that allow us to change and impact the world around us. Let your past be your past. In the fourth quarter of a football game, it's coming to the near, the end of the game, there's uh, 15 minutes left. And sometimes when you're playing a sport, it's hard because you're kind of looking back, right? And if you're playing football, you're looking back at those last three quarters, and you're thinking, hey, I wish I had done this differently. If I hadn't uh, taken that step, then they wouldn't have scored that touchdown. I wish I hadn't have made that move. And, and so you're kind of thinking about the past. A good coach comes in and says, look, forget about the last three quarters. Right? We're still in this game. We're still going to fight. We're still going to do everything we can. We're going to do everything we can until they blow that final whistle. When they blow that final whistle, hey, that's it. That's the end of the game we're not going to give up. For some of us, in fact, I would say for all of us, we're kind of in that fourth quarter, right? Because we can look back at our life, no matter what age we are, we can look back at our life, and we can see all these things that we regret and all these things that we wish we hadn't done, we hadn't experienced. But we can get to the fourth quarter, where we are right now, and we can say, hey, I'm kind of done. God's not going to love me because of what I've experienced and what I've done. God, God can't use me and and so you kind of give up. And God's like, no, 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 no. Keep playing. Keep pushing. Keep moving forward until that final whistle blows. And only then, only then can we stop. We have to remember that God sees this incredible 
potential in each one of us. And the game doesn't stop until that whistle blows. That's why John 3.16 is so powerful. Look at John 3.16. It says, This is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. This is a reminder to you and to me that the game is not over. That God has this incredible love for you and this incredible love for me. And God's like, here, here's the deal. Keep playing. I love you so much that I gave you my son. I gave you Jesus Christ. And Jesus is in your life now. And you can be different. You can be changed. You can be transformed. You can keep moving forward. And as you're doing that, man, I want to use you to help others. Because this is the love that I have for you. Keep playing to that final whistle blows. I don't know what that looks like for all of us in this room. I I know what that looks like for me. Here's some possible next steps. For some of you, your next step today is baptism. We talk about baptism a lot here at The Journey because we we believe in baptism. We we see the power in it, the transformation that takes place. And and maybe you've been a follower of Christ for a long time. You just haven't taken that step in your spiritual journey. Or, Or maybe you're just kind of at this place. You're like, man, my past is holding me down. I need to let that go. I want to be all in. And So maybe this is your first step in your spiritual journey. Maybe today is a day that you say, hey, I just want to, I want to take this next step of baptism. One of the things that we'd love for you to do is to fill out that connection card in the seat in front of you. It says, I want to be baptized. Just mark that. You don't have to be baptized. We can have a conversation about it this week. I've got a couple of meetings set up to talk to a couple of people about that. They've just got questions about it. I love answering those questions. But what does that look like for you? Why, why do we do that? Again, I think it's that moment where we're where our past is here and it goes underneath the water. We come back up and we're clean. That potential is there, and God sees that. Like, man, now we're ready to roll. So maybe for you it's baptism. Maybe for others in here, and we talk about this a lot too because it's so important. It's counseling. You have not taken the steps that you need to take to move beyond what you have experienced in your past. And so counseling is a great step to do that. People ask me this, and I share this with you before. People come up to me like, hey, do you counsel? I'm like, nope, I don't. We'll meet one time, and then I'm going to send you to a professional, okay? (laughs) That's not what I was trained to do. And so we have this unique relationship with Safe Harbor Christian Counseling. We'd love to connect you with them. Um, They use our space throughout the week. Um, There's so many people that that come here, and they're actually all over northern Virginia, and so we send you to different places. Some of you have asked, like you've contacted Safe Harbor, and you've said, hey, can I get in here? And they're like, no, we don't have any more slots open. Here's the deal. They do. Um, when you ask for a specific counselor or you ask for a specific place, sometimes those places are closed. Uh, I know the owners of the one here in Northern Virginia, and they are hiring people like crazy. They just hired three more counselors this past week. Uh, so they're continuing to expand. They, they have a, 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 actually a full-time place. They're going to reopen, I think, in December uh, off of Franconia. Let us help you out. This is so important to us. We've actually put funds aside to help when needed when there's a financial issue there, okay? We want to make sure people get the counseling they need. And so maybe for you, it's just taking that step of counseling. You can contact Alyssa, and she will get you connected with them. And then here's the third thing. For many of us, we just got to give our heart, right? We got to give away our heart. We're still holding on to it. It's still stuck. We're not moving forward. We're not looking forward. We're still here in the past. And it says here, it says, the Lord looks at the heart. And here's how I would say it. The Lord looks at your heart. And the Lord looks at my heart. 
that final whistle is going to blow at some point and life will end where will your heart be will it still be stuck in the past will it be stuck on these regrets or we've well we have gotten to a place where we finally said hey god I am going to do everything I can to follow Christ. And that doesn't mean life is easy. And that doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. But then we, we've got a place to go. We've got something to shoot for. Because the Lord looks at your heart. And when that final whistle blows, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want to say, man, I played one heck of a game. This morning, we're going to take communion together as a community of people. And and as we do, I hope you'll go back to that passage in John 3.16. I mean, that's what God's love was for us and is for us, that he, he sent his son to this earth for you and for me. And so this morning, we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the juice. We're going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing together. You're going to grab the bread and juice, take it back to your seats, remain standing. We're going to sing as a church. Then we're going to take these emblems together. And here's why. We're all on this team together. The Lord looks at your heart, but, but we do this together. To be reminded we're on the same team, and someday that, that whistle will blow. Uh, and are we going to be ready? Are we going to be able to say we, we did everything to fight for that win in our life?